Hey everybody, good evening. Matt from Don't Unfriend Me. A little bit of a different story tonight. We're not going to be focused on necessarily current events or political dealings or the election. We're going to try to focus on something a little bit different. You hear me talk about PTS all the time and stop soldier suicide. It's extremely important to me and there's a few reasons why. Every veteran has a story. Every person has a story. And the thing is, is that sometimes you cross into both worlds, the worlds of self-esteem and the world of horrible incidents that impact you. Self-worth is extremely important. And the thing about PTS and traumatic brain injury is that they, these, these aren't diseases. They're not disorders. These are outcomes of serious situations. And when you couple that with people who have some very difficult social skills or have not developed these skills properly, it can lead to disaster. I will tell you a little story about myself and what I went through, not because I'm anything special, but because if it can help one person or help you understand what veterans go through, then ultimately I've done my job. I want to talk about a soldier who was overseas and saw some horrific things and struggled every day with what he did. And when he got home to the home front, he got back to his base and he found that there was a hole that he was digging. And with his hands and knees, he found after time, he dug himself so deep that he could not get out of the hole. Over a day or two, an NCO walked by and looked down in the hole and said, soldier, what are you doing down there? And he says, sir, I, I'm down here and I can't get out. What do I do? And he throws down a shovel and he says, dig yourself out, soldier. You can do it and walks away. The hole gets wider and wider, but nothing crests the lip of the edge. And the soldier can not get out. A few seconds later, a lieutenant walks by and the lieutenant looks down the hole and says, son, what are you doing in that hole? And he says, sir, I can't get out of this hole. I've tried everything I can. And he says, grab that shovel and use the tool that your NCO gave you. And he begins to dig deeper. Days go by and a light drizzle happens. And it starts to fill up the hole with water up to his ankles. He begins to shiver, gets scared and wonders if the rain will get harder or ever stop. At that moment, a psychologist walks by, and the soldier yells out, help me, help me, I'm in this hole. And the psychologist leans down and says, don't worry, son, I'm here. Tell me about your father, tell me about your mother, tell me what you saw overseas. And the only thing that happens during that time is more water enters the hole, but not from the rain, but from the tears that the soldier sheds, nothing getting him closer to the lip to get out of the hole. The rain comes up to his midsection and then up to his neck and he's afraid he will drown. And at that time, a priest walks by and he says, Father, Father, please help me. I'm in this hole and I can't get out. And the priest takes a knee and throws down a Bible and says, read with me. We will pray to God for this rain to stop and for this storm to pass and for you to get out of the hole. And the soldier prays and prays and nothing happens. A few minutes later, a psychiatrist walks by. The rain at this point has stopped, not because of any prayers or anything else, but just because it has. The water subsides, but still the soldier's in the hole. The psychiatrist looks down and throws the soldier medicine and pills and everything else that only numbs the pain but doesn't solve the problem. The soldier at this point is shivering and is cold and knows that he will die alone in this hole. A few minutes later from there, a soldier walks by 
And the soldier with one last grasp reached out and says, help me, brother, please. And the soldier immediately sees his comrade downstairs in the hole, jumps down right by his side, puts his arm around him and helps him up. And the soldier in the hole says, brother, what are you doing now? You're down here and we're both stuck down here. And the soldier who was once on top simply says, don't worry, I know the way out. Thank you for joining me tonight. This is going to be an interesting introspective on my experience and how these things somehow correlate. My name is Matt with Don't Unfriend Me. And today we are not going to talk about the election or current events. We are going to go into something much more personal, a story that I have held on to for quite a long time. As a young boy, I was not necessarily the most popular. I was athletic. I was thin. I was fit. I grew up with a swimming pool. I had no athletic ability whatsoever, and I wasn't very popular. It's kind of funny. The first picture that I could find kind of sums it up pretty easy is that I wanted a Cabbage Patch doll at a very young kid and a very young age. We didn't have carpet in my house for a period of three or four years. The water heater blew and wiped out all the carpet in our house, and we had straight-up concrete. My mother had brain surgery. My dad held three jobs. We were certainly not well off in any way, shape, or form. The house that we had was purchased for $11,000, and the money was lent to us by my yaya and papu, who were my Greek grandparents. We led a modest, modest life. As I grew up, it just got more and more awkward. This is the lemon picture, and I have not been able to live this picture down, and it lives in infamy in the, in the halls of the spirology. I can't seem to destroy this. No matter what I do, my sister always has a copy, and I despise and hate her for it till this day. We were all blonde. We were all tan California kids. We had our own swimming pool. My father was an eclectic man and a dilettante and was good at everything. He worked in a pharmacy. He was a fire captain. He was a lifeguard. He was a Marine, is a Marine, a golf pro, a purchasing manager, and I'm sure a, oh, a bricklayer, a mason, and the man did just about everything. And in here, an impersonation of Ricky Nelson. Get a haircut, you hippie. I decided after going through some awkward things in my life, I was picked on in high school horribly. I was five foot two, I was almost 200 pounds. I tried out for football, got my ass kicked every single day. I had no friends. I latched on to people who could protect me in high school because my mouth always got the better of me and I never fit in. I sprouted up when I left Ventura High School and I finally grew into the six foot four frame I have. After some time of understanding that I had learning disabilities, I was unable to see things clearly. I had ADHD. I scored high on my IQ aptitude of 132. I had a genius IQ. I had a 12th grade reading level when I was in fifth grade, and I flunked high school and I flunked fifth grade because I was terrified of being my real self. I found solace in books as I ran away from home and I went into the library and I couldn't afford cable and I couldn't afford VHS tapes or even a Blockbuster membership because unfortunately, I had let that rack up to about $17 in late fees and I couldn't afford to rent. So I got a library card and I started to read Tom Clancy. I joined the United States Navy. 
I spent three days working for an Intel billet and it's a closed rate. There's only a thousand of them in the Navy, usually at any given time. And it's a very hard thing to find. But after scoring so high on my ASVAB and my recruiters wanting me to go into nuke school, I decided that I wanted to be an Intel rat. I wanted to be Jack Ryan. I wanted to be a spy. Little did I know is that I would be going through some of the largest challenges of my life. But before I would ship out, my recruiter had me do two things. One, which was lie on my background investigation that I had never smoked marijuana. And the two was that I didn't have any outstanding tickets or warrants. And I did. I didn't know what they were. I was a naive kid. I thought that the world was 17 million miles around. And I thought that all the continents were stuck in the United States. I wasn't very smart practically, but I understood things and I could do things. But my ADHD and my development of my brain did not happen until later in life with discipline. My folks put me on medicine. I was on Ritalin. I was on lithium. I was on Prozac. They thought I was manic depressive. They thought I was bipolar. But really what I was, was a kid who just needed someone to listen to and help. I didn't understand who I was. I didn't understand why people didn't like me. I just know that they didn't. And with that came an extremely low self-esteem. That all ended in May of 95 when I entered the United States Navy. I shed the weight. I became muscular. The young boy you see here actually was able to grow some facial hair. I got to work with some of the greatest people in the world, and I found out truly where I belonged. Got to play rugby in Japan. Got to see the Australian waters. I got to see the Serengeti. I got to see Russia, Hong Kong, South Korea, uh, the Fiji Islands. I got to see Europe, South America, and beautiful land. And I loved the military. However, that one little thing about smoking marijuana came back to haunt me on my ship. And although it didn't last very long, it put me in quite the crux, as it was found out later that indeed I did. And when you work in intelligence, you don't tell myth truths. After some time, this did clear up, but then right after that, after going on our second departure from port, the ventilation systems on the LCC Blue Ridge are horrendous. You could put a t-shirt up to the uh, evac port and it would literally turn black in minutes. And we, all of us, breathe this in ad nauseum. I had three tooth extractions because my teeth were inherently bad, back stateside. And three months later, a hole had created in my jawbone into my sinus canal and I had an infection that was horrendous. It was a full body infection. I got a blood infection. I had to go on antibiotics and an IV and I wound up having a suicide headache. And they don't call that for any other reason than you want to commit suicide to get the pain to stop. After that, my duty overseas was done and I went back stateside and I went TDY on the East Coast. One thing led to another as I stayed in the military and I did other jobs in the military. We don't need to go into everything I did, but ultimately I was enjoying my time. A bad accident took place as a spine that was already deteriorating from a spine that my father had to suffer through. My sister suffers through. My kids will ultimately suffer through. My grandfather suffered through is five things that are wrong with my spine. Stenosis, degenerative disc disease, uh, bulging disc, herniated disc, and slip discs, and every other thing except the only the big one, which is spinal cancer. And thank God that has not happened I did receive a two-level fusion. 
I had 16 injections in my back for steroids. I had a discectomy. I had a spinal cord stimulator with three leads that go up my spine about two and a half feet with a pacemaker in my back that ultimately stimulates with electronic pulses. Nothing worked. This happened 10 years after the military, after my teeth were replaced, after jawbone was replaced, after a lot of broken bones and debilitating injuries. I found myself working at Game Crazy 10 years later and I picked up a small box that was five pounds. And with that five pounds came the three loudest sounds I had ever heard in my own head were three pops as my back gave way. This ultimately led to laying in bed for weeks at a time. And then came the downward spiral. Without being able to move, work out, exercise, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and I started my trip down habitual narcotics, which ultimately made me an addict. I say addict because I'm not going to take the easy way out. The easy way out is there is two ways to be addicted to medicine, habitually and then a full-fledged physical mental addiction. People who are craving a high get the mental and physical addiction. I just had the physical and I allowed myself to lie about that for years to friends and family, that it was just because I had to have it in order to walk and move. But ultimately, it is what kept me from being unable to move and survive. At one point, I was taking 420 milligrams of oxycotton and oxy and hydrocodone a day. That is the Heath Ledger cocktail. And at any minute, I could wake up and be dead. And I know that's an oxymoron. I wound up having problems with my heart. I wound up having almost 80% blockage in one valve and 20% in the other. And I was waiting for a heart attack. My daily routine of food was six to seven cans of Pepsi, eating a ribeye steak for dinner, a loaded baked potato with cheese and sour cream, and a blue cheese salad, 240 calories a tablespoon. I would then put down a quart of ice cream, a full bag of buttery extra popcorn. I would eat an apple and peanut butter, a full thing of uh, additional ice cream, and probably a half a bag of chips every single night. I was putting anywhere from 6,000 to 8,000 calories in my body a day. I was eating jack-in-the-box, two sourdough grilled chicken sandwiches, curly fries, and a large orange high C. And then I would top it off with two or three white chocolate mocha ventis, 800 calories a day. With all of this horrible deterioration to my body and addiction to drugs, I don't remember my first daughter daughter born. I was in a a fog. People who knew me back then would say that I was up and down in my personalities. One minute I would be happy and the next minute I wouldn't. I would have an amazing amount of work ethic and then the next I couldn't do anything. The drugs ruled my life. I would make sure I wouldn't get out of bed until 10 o'clock because I didn't have enough pills to stay numb the entire day. So I would force myself through temporary withdrawal from the evening before just so I had eight pills so I could stay up till 10 o'clock that night and do it all over again. I would beg, steal, and borrow. I would do anything. I stole them from my mother, who is also very, very deep into narcotics. I would beg them away from the pharmacist if I took too many that month. I would constantly count them and check them like it was my precious and a ring on my finger. The addiction was completely mental, physical, and my choice. I didn't know how to quit. The VA wouldn't help. They just gave more medicine. 
I tried to go into rehab a couple of times, but it cost $30,000 and my insurance wouldn't cover it. It ultimately cost me my job at Apple and I lost my dream job working for a company that I put five years into working myself up from a senior manager to a store manager. And I was one of the best. My store was top five always in customer service in the world in Bakersfield, California. My associate satisfaction was up at 92%, number one in the world. And then it all came crashing down. I put on so much weight and I put so much blame on myself. I looked like an 80 year old man. I was 265 pounds, 56% body fat. My muscle mass dropped to about 92 pounds. I would get winded getting up my hair. I wouldn't even get a haircut. And I looked like death warmed over. These pictures don't do it justice because I would never let my wife take one of the pictures where I truly felt fat. And now I look at it and I am ashamed that even these pictures tell you a story about who I was. There's nothing wrong with being fat. There's nothing wrong with working out every day. There is something wrong about denying yourself that you are ashamed of who you are and you hate who you are, that you look in the mirror and despise what you see. And ultimately you would rather be dead than wake up the next day and hope that you get that in the middle of the night. It all came crashing down when I had a large panic attack. I was working on a podcast. My days at Apple were almost over. I had gotten myself in trouble because I didn't treat people properly. I did. I took advantage of people mentally. I asked uh, unbelievably difficult things for them to achieve and then lambasted them when they did it. Everything I had learned from my leaders, everything I had learned from my mentors, everything I learned in the military, everything I had learned from the bullies at school, I became what I despised. And ultimately, it almost cost me my life. I don't remember my son's birth either. Although I was a great father and I cared and loved for them, I was only a part-time father and I never really put the work in. My wife deserves all that credit. This was my wake-up call. My heart was ready to give out. I was going to die. I hadn't gotten a haircut and my hair stopped growing because of the poison I was putting in my body. I was killing myself. You can see my eyes are red here. And I have a glossy look. This I had just taken for hydrocodone and an oxycotton, And they had just given me morphine. And I wanted more. This wake-up call was precluded by a call from a friend. Somebody a long time ago who I knew who was on the teams. And we had many, many talks about what I would do if I ever went through BUDS or SEAL training. And when I worked with the teams as an intel capacity and got to know some of the guys and then later in life, I found one thing about them, that ringing the bell is, a, is, is not just for buds. Ringing the bell is something you can do in life. You can quit and you can give up. And that good friend of mine reached out and he saw my pictures on Facebook and he just called me and said, I haven't talked to you in a long while. I just want to tell you, you rang the bell on life. And he hung up and I was pissed. I was so mad. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to rip through the phone. I wanted to rip off my own skin and I was so frustrated. And I realized later that that saved my life. And he was that friend that came down in that hole to help me out. It started one day at a time. It started with some work. It started with one push-up. 
and my body rebelling and fighting. It started with five seconds on the treadmill and just taking a few steps and being so out of breath, I thought I was going to die. I had to go into a room for 30 days. I looked at my wife and I looked at my kids and I kissed them as I grabbed all of the medication and I flushed it down the toilet. One of the stupidest things I'd ever done. My body went into shock. I threw up constantly. I was on the toilet every minute of the day. I had to take a bath every 15 minutes to stop my legs from shaking uncontrollably and my body so I wouldn't chip my teeth. It was hours and days and weeks without any sleep as my body dropped 40 pounds in less than two weeks. This picture is actually a healthy picture. This picture is before this transformation took place or after this transformation took place when I started doing push-ups. But the first thing I needed to do was get clean. And it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. The most pivotal moment is when I sat on my bedside with a Glock 19 in my hands. And I couldn't have the strength to put it in my mouth. And I was too much of a coward because my children and my wife would see the remnants of who I was after I was gone. And I was still selfish to even that point. Without the strength of my wife and my family, there is no way that I would have survived. Without the police officers who showed up to my house to take care of me, who I had worked with, who worked with my uncle, who were amazing human beings, who walked me and got me the help that I needed, which was just somebody to talk to that night. That was the day that I decided to take my life back. I was told I would never do a squat again. I was told I would never bench press again. I was told I would never run again. That my surgeries, the 16 injections, the stimulator, the spinal fusions, and all of the work and the physical rehab, that I would never be whole again. After four years of fighting and struggling and getting myself back, I don't show you these pictures to be vain. I don't show you these pictures to say this is who I am now. Because the horrible thing is, is when I look at these, no matter all the things I've eclipsed, no matter all the things that I've done in my life, I still see somebody who is fat. Mental anguish is the most desperate and horrible place you can ever be. And hating who you are and coupling it with a debilitating injury and narcotics is a death cocktail. And veterans every single day, this is the way we take care of them. We don't provide them mental health. We give them drugs to solve problems that can never be solved by drugs. And we leave them in that hole alone. It took me so long to be able to show a picture of myself or go outside without a shirt on, even though I grew up with it. Even though that young boy, I grew up without a shirt on. And whenever I was in the military, I would swim and we would all wear our khaki shorts and get out there and get tan. And we would pretend that we were the cat's meow. But these pictures, I still looked at them and thought I was fat. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to make it better for you. I don't know how to fix it. But I can tell you this is it starts with a couple of things. You need to forgive yourself for who you aren't. And you need to celebrate who you are. You need to realize that nobody is perfect. That we all look at ourselves and see that maybe our chin needs a little bit of a tuck. 
or our hair has a little too much gray. You might look at yourself and realize that maybe you're not the smartest or the most athletic or the brightest, but there is something special about you. Taking your own life is the most selfish thing that you could possibly do. And the reason why is because when you do kill yourself or you do take your own life, all that sorrow and pain that you're feeling, you transfer onto somebody else. And the one thing I know about people in that hole is you never want anyone else to be in there with you. And that's what it causes. There is a way out. There is a way you can help yourself. I have been absolutely clean and have taken anything other than Advil. I eat right every day. I work out every day. I tell my wife how much I love her every day. I went through a tooth filling that turned into a triple root canal and extraction. And I took nothing. The Novocaine was all that there was. And the after effects were painful, but I will never go down that road again. Strep throat and bronchitis and pneumonia have entered my life once in the last four years. And I was offered codeine. And I said, no, no matter what the substance of your choice is, whether it be alcohol or drugs or hatred of yourself, all of it is toxic. All of it is bad. If you need help, if you need a friend, I promise you I'm here. I know what it's like in that hole and I will do whatever I can to get you out. That is my penance for being a pretty low quality human being when I unlocked the secret of what it was like to be a good human being. I let myself go. I let myself get here and it was a personal choice and I take accountability for the people who've stood by me and continue to be my friend, no matter how annoying that I can be. I love you all. If you are suffering, if you are hurting, if you need someone to talk to, you don't have to call this number, you can reach out to me. But if you don't have that ability, 1-800-273-8255, press one. Today, I lost a very good friend. And all I can say is that if we work together, if we care, if we keep an eye out on our veterans and the people around us, maybe we can get back to saving lives instead of ignoring the ones that are taken. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this. And although very emotional, I think it was important enough to say. Have a good night.